why are any of us defensive? Well, it's as you say, in some ways, they, they can get us through different hurdles in life. You know, we, we learn to engage these sort of carapaces for lots of different reasons. You know, the complexity of each human being's early experiences are bound to feed into that in part. I think it's Carl Jung that said you spend the first half of your life developing a kind of strong ego structure and the second half of your life, you know, you're sort of learning to let it go. Um, what does that then mean? It's not that you're not without your defences. It's just I think you're less fearful of how you're seen. And I think that's why people hold on to them that the fear of being seen in the full complexity of who we are is, is, can be petrifying. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleeson and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. So welcome back to the Shapes of Grief podcast listeners. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Esther Ramsey-Jones, who is a practicing palliative psychotherapist, mom of two kids. Um, Esther has done a PhD in the relational field in care homes and is author of two books that I'm aware of, one of which I have here in my hand, The Silly Thing, Shaping the Story of Life and Death, which is a very personal memoir um, written about her mother's journey with brain tumour and a glioblastoma that came out of nowhere and changed your worlds uh, very recently, Esther. So Mm. you're very welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Esther, when did you decide that you were going to document your mum's journey with brain cancer? Well, Mum, we got a call on Boxing Day. We were actually in the mountains of France um, to say that Mum had been blue lighted into hospital, which was what, what what was suspected at the time to be a stroke, but it very quickly became apparent that it wasn't. Um, And so we drove all the way back from France at pretty much high speed to find her. in our local hospital. She'd actually been looking after our cats at the time. Um, And um, she was, you know, totally bewildered. She had no familiar reference points and wouldn't have done anyway as as an older woman, in a sense. It's an unfamiliar hospital. She wasn't in her own home. Um, But she had been sort of hallucinating and and very, very quickly, um, I had a sense that that she was frightened of losing herself. Um, and she had been an English teacher all her life. So uh, she was a great lover of words, great lover of language. And um, in sort of slightly garbled and staccato-like English, she communicated to me that she was petrified of losing the capacity to communicate and be understood. That was that was her greatest fear from, from the very beginning. And um, it was just such a shock to see, you know, this woman who I do, I mean, she, she even taught at my school in secondary school and she was quite a domineering presence. And it was just that very shocking shift from a, a sort of sense of a quite a forceful mother being highly vulnerable in in situ and I just started almost typing immediately I mean I think 
maybe a week afterwards, I just started typing because I, I, just, I felt totally compelled to do so. I think it was my way of making sense of the shock initially. Yeah. It was a way um, to process the enormity of what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much irony here, Esther, in that your work had been, you know, involving vulnerable people. And here suddenly your mother, this pillar of strength, becomes extremely vulnerable. And this literate English teacher, academic, that's what she lost first, isn't it? She lost her speech. That's the part of the brain that was affected. Yes, it was. So her left temporal lobe was the area where there was a three centimetre glioblastoma growing in it. And so it was exactly that. It was her language centre, which is stored in that area that was going to, you know, it was going to have a deleterious effect on language. And, um, you know, I mean, the story of mum was that she she grew up in, in relative poverty. No one else was educated in her family. And she was a delayed reader, a delayed writer. Um, and I almost, you know, you wonder about these things. I think it's Robert Pertzik who talks about, you know, when you get sort of at some point in your life, you look backwards and you start seeing all these patterns and the way that your life has connected retrospectively. And you, it, you begin to understand how you've got somewhere, you know, you've got to the place you've got to. There was a real sense with that with mum. I kept thinking, my goodness, she'd spent so much time developing this language centre you know, that maybe she'd done too much work on it. I mean, just the strangest things I think yeah. go through your mind, or at least went through my mind in this very high state of anxiety and anticipatory grief and reaching out to make sense of everything. You know, yeah. so I was, I remember at the time, mum also talked a lot then about her life going backwards. And as I listened to her, my husband had actually bought a dictaphone the Christmas before. And all these things just started to seem prescient. You know, here was a woman that was about to lose her voice almost. We had this dictaphone. I started recording her. And as I listened to her, what just became so clear were patterns. You know, all these sort of um, what looked like inconsequential links or synchronicities. And I started to think, you know, this is how all of our lives unfold. For example, what, Esther? For for example, what? What links and synchronicities did you... And amazing that in the state of your distress, you were able to see this and capture this and have the foresight to grab the dictaphone and, you know, make magic as such out of this situation that was devastating in all other ways. I I think one of the things that because I'd been working in palliative psychotherapy and I'd spent years working in care homes and you know as a as a sort of amateur novice newbie key worker one of the things we were taught very early on through sort of the Alzheimer's society training and so forth was make memories make memories keep people alive life story work And uh, this has, you know, definitely been a theme, I think, also working with terminally ill people. I think in some ways, becoming a palliative psychotherapist, part of the work, while of course it's about um, allowing people the space to process their own grief, uh, their own fears, the anger, the rage, um, whatever they're holding on to. It's also partly I think becoming a keeper of someone's story and um, I think I became preoccupied with becoming the keeper of her story and that sort of sense of you know when she couldn't make herself seen if you like through words that we were still very much seeing her and hearing her and I think that's just where I went with it all and mum was really keen on talking as well as much I mean she was a chatterbox she was a real chatterbox and so she she just 
really engaged with the whole idea of, you know, talking. She also wanted, I think, very much to try and make sense of her own experiences in childhood and how she'd got to where she'd got to. There were all sorts of curious synchronicities, though, going mm. back to what, what you're asking. Um, you know, as, as an illiterate girl for, for many years, she um, and her father was also um, illiterate. And I think my grandmother used to, um, you know, sort of do his, his written work. He worked, um, I think, for the coal board. And his boss was an interesting chap who happened to be an academic. And he met my mum as a little girl and thought, oh, she's a bright little spark. And it was him that got her into schooling. So it was just these sort of strange meetings. And then when she did um, start to enjoy language and books, she became you know, really interested in drama, Shakespeare, so on and so forth. And I mean, whether it's a synchronicity or it's just the fact that my daughter is related to her, but my daughter is now someone that's sort of so into drama, you know, so you start to notice how people, you know, are influenced by one another. Absolutely. And so quickly and just, you know, one or two generations from this kid who hasn't learned to read or write, you know, to produce this daughter that who's an author, an academic and a PhD, you know, it's um, it's quite extraordinary. I think what strikes me as well about the glioblastoma, Esther, is it's so immediate, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. of where it was in her brain. For many people who get a cancer diagnosis, it can be quite surreal because we can't see it, yeah. you know, or we don't maybe see the symptoms um, in, in many types of cancers. Whereas with brain cancer, there is no hiding from it. It can be very apparent in, in many people who have a lesion on the brain. Would you speak a little bit about the, the shock of that, Esther? I think um, all, all of us were in a, a real... I think it, 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 was, it was surreal at the same time. I remember, I think all of us handled it very different differently I remember the feeling in relationship to my parents of sort of trying to become like the auxiliary mind you know the one that did the thinking for us all because dad was he was so frightened of what was going to happen and mum I think in the initial stages wanted to sort of um face everything head on so she she was never she never went she sort of went through one period of thinking okay maybe I can combat this so she hadn't fully absorbed I think uh the information that the consultant had given her um but she was sort of doing two things she was clearly in tension so there was one part of her I think that wanted to you know try and uh, get as much treatment as possible to live as long as possible you know when we when mum had died dad found a little note in her shoe and said various things about what she wanted one to be flexible one to be slim I think the fourth one was something like I want to live till I'm 85 for the people I love and so she wanted to keep living but she was also quite strangely right from the get-go accepting of of dying itself she wasn't accepting of losing her language but she was accepting of dying so she worked very closely with the palliative care team very early on you know deciding on how she'd want to be cared for where she'd have her funeral so I think in some ways that that helped us but as things moved along it was clear that mum couldn't quite process everything that was going on um, and she couldn't communicate exactly what she wanted she sort of developed a kind of coloured landscape of everything everything she asked for was colour-coded so she'd say I'd want I want the brown now I want the brown 
and we'd realized well the brown is is her walking stick for example and sometimes the colors didn't match the object either um so there was a lot of translation a lot of filling in in the gaps but i think more than anything was i was left with a really deep sadness i think very profound loss can rock our inner world it's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief-trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. Very early on, because I could see the struggle when she had something on the tip of her tongue and she couldn't quite get it out. And I think she wasn't often angry. There were times when, the, you know, the sheer frustration of that struggle, you know, you could see that she was at, but oftentimes, and I think this was what the sadness was for me, she looked defeated by it, you know, so she'd sort of get quieter. And for us, you get used to people, don't you? They take up roles in your life. You have a sense of who they are. And she was a really big talker and she was a laugher and she sung a lot. I mean, her, one of her other passions was singing. And so all those, it was the joys. It was not that this thing has also taken the language center. It had almost taken the joy center, I think. Yeah. And you're highlighting here just really anticipatory grief yeah. and all the, the, the slow death, the bit by bit, the losses that can happen when someone has a terminal illness. And it can be incredibly lonely because everybody else in the world is saying, well, she's still alive. She hasn't died. They don't understand the, the, the loss and the diminishment of capacity that can happen there. Mm. Are you an only child, Esther? I am, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that was... Yeah, that you was were very close tough. to your mother. Mm. What yeah. was your relationship like with her? Well, I mean, so I think... As a little girl, and I think piecing it together, I'd have, I think she had high hopes for me, you know? So I think she probably also lived quite vicariously through me. You know, I had a very different childhood to the one that she had. Her mum would sort of make her clothes, clothes with bits of, you know, leftover material. So when I, I was growing up, I think I was dressed like a, you know, a dolly in French boutique clothes, which I quite clearly rebelled against, you know, in my teenage years. I thought, you know, she, she hasn't got my best interests at heart here. I like messy jeans, this kind of thing. And so we did. We had some really tumultuous years. Um which I think in retrospect were very important ones because I had to push the boundaries of this quite fierce, fierce woman um, and sort of discern who I was separate from the ideas she might have had for me. So there was a big sort of struggle with separation and individuation, I think, going on. But mm. what that allowed for then was a, a, a sort of much more sort of rounded closeness, I think, thereafter. Um, she was extremely courageous, I think, as a mother in being able to say, look, I think I went wrong here. This is where, I, you know, we had lots of conversations like that. And so we became very good friends, actually. We became very, I enjoyed spending time with her. Um, that really comes across in the book, actually. Does it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm really glad. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really glad. I think we got to a point probably when I was mid 20s on where we were relating to one another as, you know, sort of whole, whole subjects, 
Jessica Benjamin talks about this notion of mutual, you know, recognition when when a, a, a child and its its parent have sort of managed to tease themselves apart from one another, disentangle slightly, and so you you can recognise the fullness of someone else's subjectivity. Now that's not to say she wouldn't try and brush my hair at the age of forty five still, um, <laughs> and so on and so forth. But you know, I think I was much more tolerant of it then. Yeah, lovely. Esther, just to go to some of the themes that you've written about in the book, one of them is family systems theory. Um, Would you speak a little bit about that, about the roles of families or what happens when nuclear explosions happen like this in the middle of a family and the roles we fall into or the roles that need to be fulfilled that aren't um, or that are over fulfilled um, and sometimes there's a we we can infantilize the person who is ill, particularly if they lose some of their cognitive functions and yeah. and, and families and how they hold that. I th- I think you know my experience of certainly working in in palliative psychotherapy. You know this is something we see in quite a pronounced way at times. Not not always, but we do. Um, many of us in the field, we work with with whole families and, um, you know, families are have different structures. You know, some are quite open, almost at times boundaryless. Other systems are much, much more closed. And as a professional, you might feel a bit like an intrusive object, even even trying to have some of the, the conversations that might be needed to have. I think ordinarily, um, people retreat into very comfortable sort of psychic and pragmatic spaces. So, um, you know, there are times when I think the person that is unwell, as you say, you know, you could have one member of the family taking up the space of the carer. So, so doing everything ad nauseum. Or, you know, sometimes you notice among siblings where there's a lot of competition and and rivalry, one sibling will try and get very, very close to the parent, let's say, and that will then push the noses out of joint of other, 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 other siblings. I think the work we try to do is how can we have these conversations where we can be reasonably honest about the role we want to take up or the role that is oppressing us and how can we shift it? I, I, I mean, there's a, you know, when I listen to Catherine, Dr. Catherine Mannix and about the way she talks about having these more open conversations, you know, to, to encourage intimacy really. And I think in some ways we stick to roles that we've long held for fear of either damaging one another or for fear of expressing our vulnerabilities and our anxieties. You know, I've, I, I, you know even in, in the most wonderful families at times, you know, you can have um, a parent who has been, let's say, the carer of, for, for, for the sake of argument, a wife that has had, you know, from time to time, uh, an emotional wobble. And so the dad who's now dying is, 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 is really wanting to remain strong, quote unquote, and so doesn't make any demands and holds all their own inner turmoil together, let's say. And while I think it's a hugely generous act. I think very often then in the griefing process, people are, people then start piecing together things after that person's died. Like, were they frightened? Why didn't I ask them if they were frightened? Could that have brought us even closer together? Was there a missed opportunity? Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's something, um, there's just something so important about, talking yeah but and 
Yeah, I think what you're saying there is the incongruence of putting on that brave face, if you like, or the denial or whatever it is. We pick it up at some level. We know it wasn't congruent. And that's where the questions come in. Could I have? Should I have? Yeah. What if? Um, whereas to, to strip that back and, you know, we have our defenses for a reason. But if we can courageously strip back those defenses and what I like to call the undercurrents, pull the undercurrents up and and really talk about what is actually real and authentic and congruent mm -hmm. in this situation, everything is better for everyone. Yeah. But yet so few people achieve that because, you know, denial, whether it's chosen or semi-conscious or totally unconscious is a very real thing at end of life. Um, and, and this has come up on the podcast numerous times that even when sitting in hospice with terminal diagnosis, we can still be shocked when somebody dies or when we're told this is it. Mm. What, what do you think? Why do you think we do that? Why are those defenses so, so strong when they really don't serve us particularly after the death it's 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 a very hard question to answer isn't it that um why are any of us defensive well it's as you say in some ways they they can get us through different hurdles in life you know we we learn to engage these sort of carapaces for lots of different reasons you know the complexity of each human being's early experiences are bound to feed into that in part I think it's Carl Jung that said you spend the first half of your life developing a kind of strong ego structure and the second half of your life you know you're sort of learning to let it go um what does that then mean? It's not that you're not without your defences. It's just I think you're less fearful of how you're seen. And I think that's why people hold on to them, that the fear of being seen in the full complexity of who we are is, is can be petrifying. Yeah, I, I think also... Mm because we're such an emotionally denying society yeah. as well as death denying, you know, we, we have this stoic, I don't know where it came from, be interesting to research that, but um, I suppose it's cultural, you know, stiff upper lip, mm -hmm. sunny side up, all these lovely British expressions. Um, and, you know, I, I see it even amongst friends and they're grieving, they're trying to be positive. It's like, oh, come on, you know, just be real. It's far easier for everybody. But we're so scared of emotion that often I, I see in clinical practice, people are coming in and they are petrified to feel because they're afraid that once they start, they will never stop or that there's some sort of explosion that will happen if they begin to take the valve off the the part of their emotional self. Um, you're, you're nodding furiously there, Esther. Yeah, I am. I, what I, you know, it's the, I think that's it, isn't it? Is that there's a fear that, the, the, that if we are to allow for the revelation of our feelings, that, that we'll be on overflow somehow, or, you know, it, it will take us to some sort of rabbit hole place. You know, there's something, isn't there, culturally and perhaps yeah. within family systems about emotions being, you know, sort of damaging. We equate it to losing our sanity mm -hmm. sometimes yeah. that we're going crazy. We've become this emotional uh, being rather than this thinking being. Yes. Um, and may the day come where we really embrace ourselves as emotional, physical, spiritual beings, as well as intellectual beings, so much more than our minds. I think that's the part that really does link to our sort of cultural, you know, social, political framework as well is the sort of foregrounding of the rational self i mean if you think from descartian times onwards you know that the i think therefore i am you know it's it, it, the, the implicit valuing of the cognitive rational mind i think it's one of the reasons i'm so interested in you know the experiences of what happens when we're without cognition i mean having worked for years with people with dementia what becomes patently obvious 
obvious to me is that there is um, maybe factual truths are ebbing away, but emotional truths are still retained right till the end of life, you know, and, you, you, you know, if you think of newborn babies right from the get go, their agency is being expressed in these emotional ways. And it's not dissimilar to, to the end of life when someone's post-verbal and why we've got to this point where you know the there is this split between the notion of rational and in, irrational and the irrational is effectively in, for one you know split off from consciousness if, if this is the naughty thing this is the thing we mustn't do um and I think in many ways it, it further ties in with a sort of neoliberal agenda um, of the sort of self-regulating, autonomous individual of the marketplace who can make choices very sensibly, you know, um, get a mortgage, choose which products to buy. You know, that, again, is, is about the rational-minded, you know, self-regulating individual. It's a construct, you know, because human beings are, are, you know, much messier than that. Absolutely. And then when grief lands on our doorstep, we do not know what to do with it in so many cases, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we think of the, 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 the Hollywood ideal of a house, a home, a community, a beautiful wife or a beautiful husband, your 2.5 children, your nice car in the driveway and grief. No, mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. fit into the ideal. But yeah, that's life. Yeah. And um, Esther, talk a little bit about what it was like um, waiting for your mother to die during those months. Or, or, or have I misphrased that? Was it hoping that your mother would live? Was it waiting for a cure? When did you know what was going on for you all? Well, I think, you know, while I'm always find these notions of choice and control problematic in some ways, particularly when we're talking about the uncertainty and precariousness of the dying experience. There is nonetheless the case with my mum, the most, one of the most important things to her was actually retaining her autonomy and having choice and control. So while I can see the difficulty with it, and because I think in some ways it it um, it can be not always disrespectful of the importance of dependency. Mum, nonetheless, was uh, wanted to hold on to choice until the very end. And I think when I knew what was happening, um, I mean, I sort of had a sense right, right from the beginning because I, I'd worked with people with glioblastomas before. And so I knew that really right from the beginning, this was likely to be terminal and it was likely to be relatively quick because her underlying health wasn't, wasn't great either. Um, but there was a point when mum had an enormous seizure and um, it looked at the time catastrophic and we thought she was dying then. So I charged up the motorway thinking I was coming to say goodbye to my mum, who was at that point unconscious. Two days later, and we had been warned of this, that she might rally and she and she did. And <laughs> I will never forget her opening her eyes and she just had a beaming smile, you know, as if she'd, you know, been on holiday and she was just, you know, coming back and was delighted to see people. Um, and she did, she started eating temporarily and so on and so forth. But this, this seizure had not only... I mean, her speech by this point was very limited. But what it then did was it made her immobile as well. So she became bedbound. There was a realisation and I could see, you could see the sort of cogs turning in her mind. 
you know, that this, this is it, you know, I'm now bed bound. I can just make out dad had positioned her into the, to, towards these patio doors where they had a bird feeder. And so she would sort of look out, I mean, you know, it was a beautiful view, but she'd look out at the birds. And I think she, she realized that that, that window was the only expanse left to her she wouldn't be able to go out and I think from that point and she didn't she didn't articulate it in full sentences but I think she decided to stop eating okay so she took control of her own ending very much so um and that's when we really started I mean we'd been saying goodbye incrementally for months you know for the months that she was alive but that's when it became more apparent and I remember so wanting to give her food all the time so wanting to tempt her with a um a hot chocolate um you know and and I'd seen this in so many of my clients is that food becomes this symbol of life and nourishment and how we want to keep feeding people and um I've seen much you know clients much younger than myself horrified when their parents stop eating and coming in with ice lollies anything to keep people alive I think you you don't want to say goodbye to people you love it's so basic isn't it like when a baby is born we become obsessed with nourishing them and feeding them and making sure they get enough and at the end of life it's similar as well I know parents who um you know with their terminally ill children become obsessed of you know how many poops they've done and Mm -hmm. if they're peeing and it become like because it's a sign of life it's a sign that the system is still working isn't it yeah and I'm struck there Esther by what you said about your mom's seizure and thinking this is it and how exhausting that is for Mm -hmm. carers um, your body prepares to say goodbye or for whatever shock is coming and then it doesn't happen yeah and for some people and I know that's very familiar to me in my life at the moment over the last few years I have an elderly father that is this it and constantly thinking is this the last conversation if this were the last conversation what do I need to say is there anything mm-hmm. left and um, I don't know how many last conversations I've had and uh, and that that frame of your mom looking outside at the bird feeder is exactly the frame that my father's had apart from Mm -hmm. intermittent hospital stays over the last few years, the bird feeder outside the patio doors and the squirrel that comes to get the nuts from it. Yeah. Yeah. These become very poignant memories, don't they? Well, they do. And, you know, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the, I don't know if beauty is the right word, but certainly working in palliative psychotherapy, that's where there is an inordinate amount of treasure, I think, is when people are still choosing in whichever limited capacity they can to continue to live, to see the squirrel, to to appreciate the changing seasons while simultaneously dying I mean I am always so moved by what looks to be such a small thing but it's formidable to me yeah and Esther with your background and your professional experience and then suddenly being the person because we both know they're totally different uh, experiences What surprised you when you were in the shoes of being the person who was losing a beloved? I think what surprised me is well, I think one of the things that surprised me more more than anything was I think it was my mum's generosity in the way, in the way that she died. I mean, the last thing she ever said to me was Esther, go to your babies. And I think 
in my mind, and, and I'd, I'd seen other people die with that kind of generosity, but when it was my own mother, you know, who I had also known to be, you know, quite demanding at times, to see her be able to say, look, it's the next generation. I'm handing over to the next generation to give you the permission to keep on living. Uh, to me, I think that was astounding. Like, um, it's a gift really um, on so many levels. I think the thing that shocked me about myself is that um, I somehow, I think, not always, but tr pretty much managed to stay in a reasonably contained space for her. That really surprised me. I never, ever thought, I, I never thought that I'd, I'd managed to sort of sit. There were, there were nights where she had seizures. There was one night particularly, and, and I lay on this put-up bed next to her, holding her actual physical body from bashing her arms into a wall. It was exhausting. And I remember feeling as if the room was literally crowding in on my own head. You know, uh, the sound she were, you know, she was a, she was a big singer with big lungs, my mum. And so even the breathing, it, it was so loud and oppressive. And um, yeah, I think that really surprised me that things like being able to stay in the room even. Mm that you were able to show up again yeah. and again yeah. and contain all of these aspects of her illness. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I think part of it is really down to the fact I work with some extraordinary people um, who, whether they are care workers, consultants, uh, you know, nurse specialists who have, shown me not 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 in a psychological sense also a pragmatic sense about how making certain pragmatic choices are also containing for people who are dying so yes the emotional responsiveness the attunement the capacity to be alongside someone but also the sort of being able to think before making the pragmatic choices. I think they taught me so much in that respect. So when mum was having some of these seizures, she made it very, very clear, I do not want to go back into hospital. Let me stay at home. And so managing those kind of tensions with dad, you know, not to knee jerk and call 999. Okay, let's try and think about what we can do here to keep her at home. It, 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 and that's down to the colleagues I have, the incredible team of people. You know, and, 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 and facing the fear of we might get this wrong, but it's what she really wants. Yes. And I'm willing to go through the discomfort of getting this wrong, mm. um, you know, to, to try and serve her at this time of her life. It's it's lovely because we do like and I, hands up. I'd be the first to go call 999, you know. Um, but yeah, having that capacity to turn towards the messy aspects of dying. Um, in the service of love is great. Mm. There was an extraordinary paramedic that came to the house and uh, it was a lovely chat and he really wanted to get her into hospital. And we had this very open conversation with him about who she was, what she really wanted. And at the end of it, he said, well, look, I'm going to ring my superiors. I really need to know that this is okay not to take her in. And whoever he spoke to said, okay, well, look, this is, this is what your patient wants. And at the end of that, it was so touching. He said, I'm actually so happy I can do what she wants and not what I think she might have needed. Yeah. And, you know, there were some incredibly moving human moments, I think.
through those months. Um, I think a lot of healthcare professionals, I hope they know, you know, with these acts of compassion and these yeah. acts of kindness, how deeply they can touch people. Um, I remember a couple of months ago during the, the pandemic, Esther, and my father really deteriorated. And, you know, I did the call 999 and the, the ambulance service came and there was this really young doctor um, and I suppose I was feeling a little bit cynical, you know, at first going, you know, that he's maybe 30. What does he know? Kind of thing. And um, he was just so kind. And this is right during lockdown one where everybody's really scared. Mm. Nobody knows really what this virus is about. And I'll never forget, you know, he asked me to help him get dad sitting up in bed and I remember noticing, oh, he's not scared to approach my father, even though there's a bunch of us here in this room, you know, his um, care assistants and a, a couple of us from the family. And then my father started vomiting all over him and he didn't move. He didn't flinch. Mm. He just reassured my dad. He kept holding him. And, you know, I was just a few inches from his face and I was so humbled, you know, by this act of total generosity of being able to show up and just meet this human with utter kindness and uh, compassion and generosity. And, you know, that's what I'll remember from this year, from all the, the trips to the hospital in and out was just his ability to just stand alongside this, um, this physical distress and, and not run from it. It's, I think it is striking. I mean, going back to your, your question of, you know, where you said, what, what was I most surprised about in myself? You know, I've, I've spent many years living in my head, I think, on the kind of cere cerebral end of things. And I think that's what I was most frightened of, all the bodily mess, you know, um, things in my mind that I would have... I was convinced I'd have had to have run away from them and somehow finding the ability and, and maybe in some ways having worked in care homes, you know, I'd, I'd sort of prepped myself, but, but, but I thought anything, you know, like mum's dying secretions, I, I didn't think I'd be able to, you know, sit alongside things like that. And yet, somehow found found that ability to sort of gently wipe 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 her face down and um I think yeah it's it's and and you know knowing many many people that's a terrifying experience to witness if you're not you're not aware that things like that are going to happen you know yeah and it's something that's not talked about. So no. when it happens, yeah. um, people can misinterpret it, mm. you know, and, and, and these are things that can leave that traumatic mark in, in somebody's mind um, or in their nightmares for months or even years after a death. So thank you for, you know, bringing our attention to that as well. Mm. Esther, one sentence you have in your book, death shakes the cohesion of the self. <laughs> And, and not, not from your mother's perspective, from your perspective. Um, a lot of guests have talked about this fragmentation or this breaking apart that they feel happens mm. when someone they love dies. Would you speak about that a little? I think my experience of that, I mean, I think, as we all know, grief is such a unique experience and... Um, you know, depends what the relationship might have been like, who the relationship was with, whether it has some sort of sense of being the natural order of things, which I think in some ways it, it was for, for me in terms of my mum being, being older. Um, it was very shocking. It was extremely sad to see her change in the way that she did in front of us. Um, but I don't think in my experience, it was the sort of relationship, I think partly because we'd sort of worked around this notion of trying to be, as Melanie Klein might describe it, whole objects to one another, 
you know, there wasn't a lot of regret relationally. Uh, but it nonetheless, I think what surprised me so much, it was a sense of being cracked open um, to, to love, you know. I think it's that, you know, people, I think, and certainly my dad, who'd lived with mum for, you know, over 50 years, he started to notice aspects of her in her absence you know, she became present in a really technicolor way. You know, I think it's it's that where it's where it's left where it's left us. I think mm. all these sort of little details. You know that you. I, I think what it made me realize is that is that while we're living, we think we're living. We're not entirely present to everything. You say something, conscious, intimate encounters. You, you write that in your book. I think it's that. And it's hard to sustain it, you know? I mean, having done years of meditation in my 20s and so on and so forth, I remember, I think, a, a Buddhist, you know, who was leading one of these things, you can meditate while cleaning your teeth. And I remember, you know, in my 20s, cleaning my teeth ever so slowly and thinking, okay, I'm paying real attention to how I'm doing this. And, you know... I there's no way I behave like that in my real life at all. But, but there is something about noticing one another, you know, in the moment that I think when somebody then dies, you, you knew that you were relating to them. There's something stripped back about that kind of relating. like this numinosity is that the word yeah that's a lovely word isn't it yeah yeah and I think the the ability to have these conscious intimate encounters with people certainly when you become a parent or less and less because your body's in a state of survival a lot of the time <laughs> you're trying to keep people alive and from stop them from killing each other and you know, as your mother did with you, we're constantly trying to make up for the flaws of our own childhoods and mm -hmm. make sure that our children don't have that. And gosh, we can really go into overdrive. Yeah. And in really that, that um, sort of sense of being present to them and making up for what we didn't have, we actually lose what's most important, which is just mm -hmm. that conscious presence with our children, you know. I guess the thing is, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because when you're with someone in that way, I think you you are being with them. You know, I, I kept thinking that a oh, with is going to be my word for 2021, with, just with, you know, not least because in the global pandemic, you know, I think it's really, you know, sort of highlighted how we all need one another in, in the sense of community and relationships. But... Um, life is about doing and being isn't it I was thinking that life has a kind of tempor temporality to it you know it's got an end point and so in order to live life you want to I think at least I, I can say this I, I want to do things I want to do things that are meaningful have some impact so on and so forth but doing to the detriment of being yeah it's not helpful and being to the detriment of doing probably isn't either so it's it's this it's this quality of both how do we how do we, how do we move between both places i think the thing with grief um yalom writes about you know people leave ripples concentric circles of impact of who they are and i think that's that's my overriding experience of having having lost mum you know I, I I see her in all sorts of moments you know whether it's in the way my children might phrase something now or you know I know one of the things I often notice is I'll be doing some sort of smile and I'll think that's not even my face I can actually sense my mother's expression on my own face so 
Um, so the ripples are mighty. Yeah. How are how are you doing nowadays, Esther? I mean, it's it's still very early in your grieving process. I think I've thought over and over again about that. And one thing I can say, knowing uh, many people who've lost someone in the pandemic and either with COVID or, or a cancer and they haven't been able to say goodbye. Um, I, I'm relieved mum died before this was going on. I, I yeah. think it would have been horrifying. I've heard that from a lot of people yeah. that, you know, what was the most awful moment in their life, they're now going, thank God yeah. that happened when it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I'm supporting a few people who are bereaved this year and it's really tough, yeah. really tough. It's a whole other layer. Mm. Uh, going back to Yalom, I'm so excited because I've had some email communication with him and I'll be interviewing him on my birthday in 2021. So that is an exciting question. I know, he's <laughs> like, you know, I used to read him while other people were reading novels, you know, I'd be like, oh, I love his book. So yeah, hopefully... Um, he won't forget. I keep sending him little email reminders. Make sure I'm still penciled in. Yeah. Well, look, Esther, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you as well. Yes. I see your name popping you. up on Twitter and yeah. Instagram. And uh, it's nice to, to meet you in the flesh. It um, really is. It's been a really, a really lively and lovely conversation to have. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be really beneficial to lots of people listening. And um, admittedly, I've only um, flicked through the book, but I've seen enough to make me really want to sit down and, and fully read it cover to cover. I'm sent a lot of books by people um, and I, I can't read them all, you know, mm -hmm. but this is one that I absolutely I'm going to read fully um, from the little bits I've glanced at it's really really pulling me in so uh, I think I'm going to actually learn a lot from reading your book Esther oh thank you very much Liz the silly thing shaping the story of life and death by Esther Ramsey Jones um, I will link to where it can be purchased and I see Juliette Rosenfeld whose name comes up a lot in my podcast these days and <laughs> um, she's written a lovely little testimonial on the back there so great thanks so much Esther enjoy your carrot cake now I know you're making yeah. carrot cake with your kids <laughs> thank you and, very much. Uh, you can run back into your neighbor tell him he can start drilling again drilling again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the best Liz thanks a lot take care thank you for listening to this episode of shapes of grief this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleason, take really good care.
absolutely gorgeous.